Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I ran into Denzel Washington, and he stopped me and said, hey, I love this show. I'm like, thank you. That's awfully nice. He's like, no, no, you're not hearing me. You know, Bill Murray. Bill Murray being a Chicagoan Catholic school, Jesuit school product like me, and I already knew Bill a little bit. And those guys saying, no, 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 seriously, I'm not just saying this because you're standing here. I love what you two are doing, and here's why. And they would start talking about the chemistry. I couldn't believe that we were going to get a show, and we got a three-year contract, the third year at the option of the company, and two years guaranteed, and I just said, this is fantastic. We're going to be off the air in two months, and we're going to get two years to get paid, and that's great, and then I can go back to being a columnist. Why devote an entire episode of Origins to ESPN's Pardon the Interruption? The easy answer is threefold. First, PTI is one of the most successful original programs in the history of sports television. Second, it has influenced television far beyond the world of sports programming. And third, in my continuing attempt to ensure that good news doesn't travel slowly, telling the story of PTI's birth and development carries with it a look inside bold and intelligent leadership and demonstrates how a small group of practicing adults inside a bigger company can create their own culture and, get this, actually enjoy themselves at work. Here is Origins Chapter 2, ESPN Episode 2, Pardon the Interruption. It's time to play Has This Ever Happened to You? Have you ever pitched what you thought was a great idea to your boss, only to have that idea ignored or dismissed outright? To know that feeling is to loathe it. But what if somehow, one day, you could bring your idea to life despite your boss? Too good to be true? Well, welcome to Fantasy Island. Now, you might assume that PTI, a.k.a. Pardon the Interruption, was the brainchild of co-stars Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, that they pitched their hearts out to ESPN and managed to convince the network to give them and their show a try. That sounds like a familiar enough path, but in this case, you would be wrong. The show, now in its 16th season on ESPN, was born inside the brain of Mark Shapiro, former ESPN executive and current president of IMG. The idea for PTI actually came to me because I was working out on the treadmill on a Sunday afternoon and Crossfire was on CNN. And I'm watching these guys go at each other and I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, nowhere is debate better than in sports. Sports is argument. Why don't we have a show like this? We spend so much time, as we should, breaking news, reporting on the news, going after the big get interview, scores and highlights, but we don't have anywhere where we really discuss, debate, argue, which is so healthy, so fun, and so entertaining, the world of sports on a daily basis. But I wrote a treatment to John Walsh and Steve Anderson that we should be doing our own version of Crossfire, which turned out to be... PTI. The other one was a nightline, an everyday nightline. Ted Koppel nightline on sports topics. Instead of breaking Al Campanis once every few months, it was 
and every day with a chance to break news or at least shed revelatory insight and a certain topic or headline or story, which turned out to be outside the lines nightly, ultimately. But at that time, nothing happened. I mean, frankly, I, I turned in these treatments to John with backup research on why I thought they would work, and it was crickets. After a few months, and say, by the way, did you ever get my treatment on a daily crossfire or, or a version of Nightline? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, did you have any feedback? I mean, I remember night and day sitting in his office, kind of on the way out the door after a meeting and hitting him on this. And uh, while he's thumbing through the Rolodex, you know, in his way, he's moving on to the next phone call. And he said, it won't work. I said, why? It'll hurt Sports Center. Why? It'll hurt the 6 o'clock Sports Center. I mean, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock, that's, that's our bread and butter. And if we take the news away from it earlier, the 6 o'clock Sports Center, you'll have no reason to watch it. To which I responded, if the show works, it'll lift Sports Center. Kind of rising tide lifts all boats. And our weekday afternoon is getting dated with Up Close and, and some of the NFL programming that we had there. And he said, I, I don't, we didn't see it that way. We talked to research. And that was it. It died. It was dead. It was gone. Okay, so... Nothing happened for a while, and you get a promotion. That's right. It was only until years later when I got the job to run all of programming in 2002 that I didn't really have to ask anyone's permission. Put the business plan together, put the model together, get the right format, get the right producer, get the right talent, talk to George Bodenheimer about it, and you're greenlit. So is it fair to say that after getting programming, PTI was... On your hit list. You still were convinced it would work. I think in the first couple of months, you acted upon it, right? I kept this idea. I kept it fresh. I was convinced it would win. And finally, when I got the job, I went right about rebuilding. And I also felt our ratings were in the tank. Other than adding in some new sports, it was the same programming format that Bornstein from years earlier had developed. It hadn't changed. And I will tell you at that time, the culture of our company, our programmers didn't even look at ratings for the most part. Ratings wasn't a fabric of the culture. How are we doing? How is this lead in? How is this lead out? Compatible programming, counter programming. That really didn't exist. I mean, I got to tell you, Jim, folks love to debate. They love to be heard. They all have different points of view. If you're a sports fan, you're always arguing back and forth. David Burson is the president of CBS Sports and a former key executive at ESPN's programming department who worked closely with Shapiro for more than four years. The games are clearly the largest driver of audience. The key really was what you do around those games and leading into games, leading out of games. That's obvious. That's easy. And we did that relatively successfully. The key was really building up audience in the, the rest of the day. What we try to do at ESPN is to become a destination outside of live events. That's really the key. So tell us about 530 and who do you want to make sure is watching? It's a challenging time slot. You have younger folks that are home from school or hanging around. You have some adults that are home early, older folks that are around that might not be working. It's a very difficult time slot. What we need to do is just be relevant for that day for sports, but we couldn't be a clone of SportsCenter. It needed to be a little different. Shapiro had held on to the idea, and he had held on to his choice of talent he wanted for the new show. Washington Post reporters Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, who he had gotten to know when he produced Sports Century. They would call me during the Sports Century Project, and we did that countdown of the 50 greatest athletes. And the show is aired every Friday night in consecutive weeks, culminating with the, the greatest athlete of the century as named by the panel of experts. And each week, they would call just 
on my phone. Are you kidding me? They'd be on speakerphone and they'd be screaming at me that Secretariat is a horse that shouldn't have made the top 50 and Mickey Mantle should have been in the top 10. And I'm telling you, there was no right. No matter who came in each week, right. it was either they didn't belong or they were too high up or they were too low. And it was an incredible argument. And I would just sit there. They would come at me. But after two minutes, I didn't say a word. They would just start arguing with each other. And it was so entertaining and so funny and so thoughtful and so insightful and so compelling, just ribbing on each other, that the minute I decided I wanted to do a show like this, it was, these are my two guys, but I knew instinctively that it would be very hard to get Tony. John A. Walsh easily ranks as one of the top 10 most influential executives in ESPN history. Tony Kornheiser and I, in August of 1970, started our professional careers on the same day at Newsday. And Tony worked in the sports department. And then various points in Tony's career had hired him to work at Inside Sports, was a friend of his when we were both at the Washington Post together. And that's where I was introduced to Mike Wilbon. Mark called me on a Friday morning after he had been in Washington, D.C. and watched the George Michael sports machine on a Thursday night. And he said, you know, we've got a lot of people who are pitching to be the host of this new show. I said, I'm not surprised. And he said, I just watched this segment with Kornheiser and Wilbon. He said, what would you think about them hosting the show? And I said, don't go any further. That's the easiest question ever. Just hire them on the spot. <laughs> Just do it because they'll be great. I remember walking out of the building with Tony and Mike. They would argue on the way to their cars. You know, it was part of who they were that they had this ongoing debate in the newsroom, in the sports desk, and it was just a natural and they had taken it to television, thanks to George Michael, and lucky for them and lucky for Mark Shapiro that Mark was there to watch them do a show and hire them. Before PTI, Tony Kornheiser was a guy dripping with skepticism, doubt, and generous portions of fear and loathing. He seasoned those qualities with sardonic and humorous asides to his writing. Often, a phrase or chunk of one of his pieces for the Washington Post would go virtually viral, and that was before the internet. Tony is going to make you laugh or die trying. Wait, correction. He will make you laugh or kill you. He wants you to know he's there, and not so secretly, wants you to love him. Wilbon? He could care less about fame or glory. Unless you're a member of his family or part of a small group he respects the hell out of, he may not even care whether you admire him. What he has always cared about, and still does, is whether he's had the opportunity to voice his opinion, and whether in doing so, he's committed solid journalism. His batting average on making that happen is extraordinary. For ESPN, the Kornheiser-Wilbon combination has been proven to be nuclear fission. What was your mindset from the time that Shapiro talked to you? Let's start with, what did he say to you at the, ah. Ivy, at the Ivy? So we get to the Ivy. He made a reservation there for 8 o'clock one night. It was during the NBA Finals of 2001. We had gotten to know Mark really well during the um, Sports Century Project. Both Tony and I were panelists. And he had always said, one day I'm, I'm going to put you guys on TV. Like, right. So he said, remember how I said the first thing I was going to do was put you guys on? And I said, yeah, and the second thing is going to happen is you're going to get your ass fired for doing this, for putting two sports writers on television. And he said, nope, here's what we're going to do. And he drew it out on a cloth napkin, literally. 
We're going to sit you at a set together. And he wanted other things going on. And I was like, what are you talking about? But when he got to the crux of it, two guys talking about sports who disagree a lot. And we weren't going to do it like uh, Crossfire on CNN. It wasn't that. It was more like Siskel and Ebert, which resonates with me because I'm a Chicagoan. I grew up reading Siskel and Ebert. Right. And so when he said that, I, I thought, okay, I get that part. I don't get any of this other stuff, but I get that. And I don't know why that hasn't been on television before now. Mike and I talked the format, the show, how it would work. Mike was very sensitive to his Washington Post job. He did not want to come off the beat. And Mike prides himself on that, that while everybody was at home writing columns based on what they saw on television or heard on the radio, he was one of those old-time sports reporters that covered the beat. Yes, he would write a column, but it was only after being there as an in-person observer. He took a lot of pride in that. And he didn't want to give up that, and he didn't want to give up his day job of writing the Post. That night, I called Tony. It was uh, 1 a.m. when Shapiro and I finished our four-and-a-half-hour dinner. Close to five hours. It was 1 a.m. I knew he would be awake at 4 a.m. in Washington walking his dog, Maggie. And I called him and I said, you got to listen to me for 10 minutes. Don't say a word. Because our lives are about to change. For, for good. And, you know, Tony, neither one of us ever shuts up. He didn't say a word. And I just explained to him what Shapiro had said. Mike found out about this before I did. And Mike called me and he said, you know, we're going to do a show. And I go, well, what are you talking about? And he said, no, we're going to do a show for ESPN. And I said, well, no, nobody's told me this. So, oh, no, no, it, it, you're involved in it. And he talked about Shapiro and meeting Shapiro and having lunch or something like this. And I said, what? seriously, what, what are you talking about? Why do you think that this is going to happen? No one has talked to me. I mean, if we're going back, so this starts in 2001. I'm a newspaper writer. I've done a bunch of different things on television but it's been essentially on a freelance basis. I've enjoyed it, but I didn't see that as my career. Tony's Tony. I mean, he's a curmudgeon. He doesn't want to travel. You know, who would want my ugly face? What do I have to say? Who cares about me? And sure enough, when I first approached him, that was his immediate long litany of responses before he hung up on me. But I knew that if I could get Wilbon on board, the two of us could convince Tony. So once we kind of got through those logistics and I had them, we then kind of structured a game plan on how we would get on the phone through a series of phone calls and convince Tony to do it. And that's exactly what ended up happening. He called me in one afternoon and said, Jim, I want you to oversee the start of a new show. It's going to be called Pardon the Interruption. And it's basically going to be a couple of sports writers talking sports, doing a little yelling, maybe having some fun. And um, I want you to run it and start it. To which I said, well, is there a budget? No, no budget. I said, is there a studio or office? No, no studio, no offices. <laughs> I said, how about headcount? No, no headcount. I said, well, you know, I've never produced a TV show, and I've certainly never started one from scratch, not to mention starting one with no budget, no studio, no office, no headcount. So I'll do what I can. He said, figure it out. So I figured it out, and Eric Reitholm is a big reason for that. There are all types of producers. Some are architects, some builders, some gather the money together, and still others run their operation. It's hard enough to find someone who can fill one of those functions really well. And yet somehow, PTI's head raccoon, Eric Reitholm, excels at all of them. He's simply one of the best producers working in television today. And Jim Cohen's decision to bring him on board for PTI has proven to be one of the most important personnel moves in ESPN history. 
I was actually living in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was a founding partner of a company called The Motley Fool uh, that gives people investment ideas in the stock market. And uh, we were going through a really rough patch. The bubble had burst on the Internet, and it was difficult to get financing, and we were running at a loss, and so we had to let a lot of people go. It's a company that we had been just three of us at one point and had grown to 450 and now was uh, ramping down quickly. And I needed something creative to do to get my mind off the business. And so I decided to write a sports column. And so I wrote one and it compared what Michael Jordan was going through when contemplating his retirement and potentially coming back with the Wizards and my father's own retirement. I was happy that I finished it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I sent it to Chicago Tribune and they published it. And uh, among the people that I sent the link to was my old boss from ESPN from years before, Jim Cohen. I had been the Chicago Bureau producer in 1994. I don't know if it was the same day that Shapiro told me that I'm going to be starting this show called Pardon the Interruption or soon thereafter. But I get an email from Ride Home with a link to a column he had written for the Chicago Tribune about Michael Jordan, and I don't remember too much about it, but of course it was well-written, and I was moved by it. So I called him, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm still at Motley Fool, but, you know, they want to do something a little different, I'm not sure. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about getting back to television? And he said, ah, not really interested. I think television is behind me. I said, well, what if I told you that we were thinking of starting a show in Washington and the talent would be Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon? Would that do anything for you? He said, well, that may be the exception because he was a big fan of the two and he was intrigued. I was so thrilled because just like I had been looking for a creative outlet when I wrote that column, I was looking for another creative outlet when he had asked me for some thoughts on it. And so the following weekend, I think, I just sat down and started writing and reading, I guess, first and foremost, because there was so much out there uh, that they'd both written. But also there, there was something that they had done online, which was called the Chat House for the Washington Post. And in that, they played off of each other. You could see the chemistry that they had with one another, where their answers were more about three sentences each, and they would go back and forth at each other. And uh, when I read that, I was like, wow, these are essays within paragraphs. And the dynamic and the chemistry between Tony and Mike is amazing. And so based off of reading basically the entire history of Chat Houses, I went ahead and started imagining a show that would involve Tony and Mike and showcase them. But also, remember, there wasn't a whole lot of precedence for this type of show. I mean, the Sports Reporters was on weekly, but it was a sort of different type of show. You got to consider a whole week's worth of events rather than just a day's. So really, the document wasn't so much like, here's what the first segment would look like and second segment would look like. It wasn't that detailed. It was more of a philosophical, here's what a show needs to be in order to do this and succeed and succeed for the long term. And so, yeah, I put together some thoughts on what would make a show like this different, better, and special, which were the three attributes that my dad always focused on in his career. He was uh, a creative in advertising, and I sort of felt like that's what he tried to do with the product, and that's what I needed to do with this one. I think within 24 hours, he sent me a long proposal on what kind of show this could be, which was, of course, brilliant and pretty much the same as what Shapiro and I had discussed. So that was that. And we asked him to run the show. And one of his concerns was he didn't want to be part of corporate America. I said, 
Well, that's convenient because this show has no budget, has no staff, has no office, has nothing. So I'm really looking for someone to run this show who can also hire the staff through his own company. So you'd be your own boss to some extent. That got me excited. And Jim Cohen, who I think was channeling some of Mark on this, I remember him telling me, here's the two things we ask of this show, that it look like no other show on television and that it be the best show on television. And I was like, oh, really, is that all? As we develop the show, we put together a think tank, what the segments would be, what the format would be. And Jim brought the most eclectic group to the table of individuals I'm not kidding you, to sit in there and decide what would make for a good device or name of the segment. That's where you got the fastest, you know, a couple of minutes uh, or whatever, two good minutes, the interview and bobbleheads, on and on and on, you know, buy low, around the horn, a lot of those shows, all were developed by a think tank, think tank of devices. And Eric played a, a large part in that. But Jim had his dentist. His dentist was one of the people in the room coming up with these ideas. And Jim's whole thinking was, we don't want just people from Bristol. We don't want people to just know television. In fact, arguably, we don't want that at all. We want the fans fan. We want sports fans. We want your everyday consumer. We want your everyday listener and watcher of sports content. We want to hear what they want. And it was a think tank. And it was, we'd go to an offsite hotel. I think it was out in Farmington or Avon, one of the hotels out there. And sit there for six, seven hours and just brainstorm and throw stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. It wasn't something you were going to be able to have much press back on when it came to Mark because he was just coming off of the Sports Century series. And what he did with Sports Century was amazing. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's been forgotten in the wake of all the 30 for 30s. But Sports Century, he came in and he did all of those, you know, all 50 of those or whatever they ended up being, 100 maybe close to. And he did them under budget and he did them in a formatted way that really put ESPN on the map in a way that it hadn't been before and he just had incredible conviction in how to do it and um, Tony and Tony in particular I remember would tell stories about how he would just show up at like 9 a.m. and be stuck in a hotel suite for hour upon hour only having access to an occasional bagel as fuel and going on and knocking out all this content and Mark being wholly unsympathetic with Tony's plight, just telling him to keep talking, keep unloading all of the uh, intellectual capital in his brain. I had huge respect for Mark and what he had put together uh, with Sports Century. And I was willing, uh, if he said, go ahead and do it, it wasn't really for me to argue because he had just done it. And that's when I started thinking about ways that the show could visually look different and hopefully upend not just the convention of sports talk television, but all talk television. How did you regard your role? Because you were involved in a lot of different things. Well, what really happened is this. When Mark told me, hey, I'm going to do it, I love not having to be responsible for things and contribute to them. So I just said, Mark, I'm all in. I was opposed to it, but let's see what happens. And then we had a brainstorming day in Washington, D.C., and Eric had great ideas. And because of his time at The Motley Fool and his familiarity with the Internet, he had a vision for what the show should look like. So we talked about that. We talked about segments. And he knew what his vision was for the show. And then we had this meeting with Jim Cohen and Ride Home. And I was just giggling through the whole thing because I couldn't. I mean, look at us. 
Tony was terrifying to me. So I had met Mike Wilbon maybe a month before any of this hit my radar. I had a, a friend from high school who invited me to dinner. And so I sat down at dinner, and who was I sitting next to but Mike Wilbon. And I had just admired him for so long by reading him in the Washington Post, but also because he came from Chicago, and I came from Chicago. And so we sat there the whole time and just talked about Chicago sports. And we got along great, and I was so excited. And uh, I was just thrilled. And then a month later, you know, when all of this pops up, he was just so kind to me right off the bat. And he gave me credit, which I don't know if I deserved. I mean, he knew that I had done The Motley Fool, and he uh, thought of me as somebody who really knew what he was doing. But this was going back into television. I mean, I'd produced television news for a couple of years after college, but I'd been out of it for seven years. But he seemed to place just enormous trust and faith in my brain. And I hadn't met Tony. So the first day I meet Tony, uh, we're having this meeting, this creative development meeting at a hotel in Washington with about 20 people, including John Walsh and Jim Cohen and the whole gang. And uh, I sit down to breakfast with Tony, and the sun is behind him. So he's sitting at a table, the sun is behind him. And so there's like a silhouetted effect, which, um, and the only thing I can really make out clearly on his face are his sunglasses, which he's wearing inside, facing away from the sun. So I'm, I walk in and I'm already intimidated by Kornheiser, and this is even more intimidating. I'm talking to a silhouette wearing sunglasses inside, um, who I know is judging me, because this is what Tony does. He judges people. And uh, I fumbled around trying um, very insecurely to impress him. And I can't remember exactly what it was I said. I said something about Britney Spears at the time and how as much as I want to talk about sports, I want these guys to feel free. I said, I want you, Tony and Mike, to feel free to sort of digress and devolve into other things which are important or at least resonant in the culture, something like Britney Spears. And he finished eating a bite of eggs and he uh, raised his head up and he said, well, then I think you should produce this show. And I was just gleeful. And I didn't think I'd earned it with that line, but somehow he thought I had. I led the meeting, and the first thing I said, after thanking everyone for being there, was, we're going to be starting a show. The name of the show is Pardon the Interruption. The only thing not up for debate is the name of the show. Everything else is up for debate, and I want your creativity to go wild. As a matter of fact, the number one objective here is to come up with an idea for a television show that is different than anything else on television right now. The number two objective is to make it good. And if we just make it good and it's not different, then we failed. The main thing is to make it different. And then we'll worry about making it good. I was having a weekend breakfast with an old sports PR guy by the name of Joey Goldstein. I mean, we're talking a throwback here. He's, he must have been 80. And he did some freelance work for us because he knew all the sports writers. And he could get articles for our company just by virtue of his relationships. And we're sitting uh, having breakfast at the diner in my hometown of Westport, Connecticut. And we're talking and I'm telling him about the show and giving him some updates on other ESPN news. And he interrupts me and says, pardon the interruption, blah, blah, blah. And 
you know, it's not a saying you're used to hearing these days, right? I mean, how right. often are you in a conversation with somebody these days and somebody says, pardon the interruption? They don't say that, you know, pardon my interruption. That doesn't really come up. People just interrupt you these days. Right. They, don't, they don't apologize for it. And I said, hold on, wait a second. That's the name. What do you mean? That's the name of the new Kornheiser Wilbon show. What is? Pardon the interruption. That's the name. Pardon the interruption. That's exactly, because that's all they're going to do is talk over each other, interrupt each other. That became PTI. And Tony and Mike fought tooth and nail not to call it that. Nobody uses that expression anymore. It sounds old. It's dated. Nobody cares. And Rideholm and Jim Cohen were also against it. The one thing that Mark said going into this brainstorming meeting was, do whatever you want, but you're not going to change the name. And sure enough, the one thing that people wanted to do more than anything was change the name. There's some things that are a democracy and some things that we try to get the consensus. And there's some decisions you just make them. That's the name of the show. Get used to it. Figure it out. Trust me, it's going to take. And it just goes to show you that in television, if the show is good, the title doesn't matter. If the show isn't good, then boy, what a stupid name. We all go into this meeting and... I'm sitting next to Tony, and about 20 minutes into the meeting, he writes something on a pad of paper, and he pushes it my way, and I look down on it, and it says, I want to wear a dress on television. And I said, okay, here's a guy who is creative enough to take some chances, and uh, this will be very exciting. Getting back to Eric, it's my very, very strong opinion that the most important hire we made for the show, not Mike, not Tony, but Eric, I believe that very, very strongly. And I think if Eric was the producer and we had different talent, the show may have worked. May have. But if it was the same talent and Eric wasn't the producer, chances are the show would have failed. By now, you've heard many talk of the amazing shave they get from Dollar Shave Club razors, especially when used with their Dr. Carver shave butter. Now, you can add even more DSC products to your daily routine. Dollar Shave Club makes products for your hair, your face, skin, shower, everything you need. They will have you looking and feeling amazing. And it's all their own original stuff. They only use the finest premium ingredients and they deliver to you just like they do their razors. That means no more annoying trips to the store, cruising up and down aisles, looking at shelf upon shelf of what the hell is that and what do I do with it? You can use Dollar Shave Club for just about everything. They will have you covered head to toe. And with gift memberships and e-gift cards available, DSC can help cover the names of your holiday shopping list too. We want you to love Dollar Shave Club as much as millions do. So we've arranged for you to try your first month of their best razor, along with travel-sized versions of shave butter, body cleanser, and yes, even wipes, for just $5. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the DSC starter set. Get yours for just 5 bucks, exclusively at Dollar Shave Club, dot com slash origins that's dollarshaveclub.com slash origins pti would have a small staff every position was critical there would be no place to hide jim cohen had made the genius move to hire eric Rideholm. now with a single phone conversation he would further strengthen the show's varsity bench Here's PTI producer Matthew Kelleher. I got a call in August of 2001. I had actually just gotten married to a woman, Shannon Suzuki, who I met in Bristol and was also a PA on SportsCenter. And about a week after I got back, I got a, a voicemail message from Jim Cohen. The way he described the show to me was, 
we want to do the show in Washington. It's going to be Siskel and Ebert meets Crossfire. And, you know, we have an executive producer in place, but we want you to go down. And my first objection was, well, I just got married. Ten days after we got back from our honeymoon, Matt was like, so you want to go to D.C.? And I was like, sure, sounds great. Because we were working different hours and different days, and we were kind of looking to get out of ESPN. And so Matt had talked to Jim Cohen, and Jim said, by the way, after all the spiel, said there is a spot for Shannon, too. So... We were willing to do whatever, and before he even knew it, and before he got off the phone, Matt knew there was a job for me, too. And so we went over to Jim's office, and he called up Eric on a speakerphone, and my wife and I were there. And he said, Eric, just take five or ten minutes to sort of outline what you're thinking for the show. And as I like to say to Eric all the time, about an hour later, somebody else got a chance to sort of pipe in. It just came flowing out of him, all these very exciting-sounding ideas about a show. Like the shows that we built this show on were shows that I watched with my father when I was growing up. Those shows included the sports writers on TV in Chicago, which was, you know, four guys smoking cigars, sitting around a card table, Rick Tallender and Bill Jouse and Bill Gleason, Ben Bentley. And we just watched it and loved it. And it was on once a week. And... Siskel and Ebert, which was based out of Chicago. Siskel and Ebert, where it was two guys arguing about films. Loved that show. Watched that with my dad. Uh, one other show that came to mind was Sonny and Cher, where you had two people taking jabs at each other throughout uh, the course of an hour. And at the end, they kissed, they made up, and they walked off stage hand in hand. And those were all the sort of influential shows that I had in mind when we were putting together the dynamic of PTI. I was writing sports trivia questions for an ESPN game show. Tony Reale, future stat boy and later anchor of Around the Horn, was fresh out of Fordham University when he applied for a job at PTI. That, for me, was a job where you keep a notepad next to your bed, you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, who is on deck when Mookie Wilson hit the ball through Buckner's legs, Wally Backman. And that was not working for ESPN. It was working for the production company. But I'd heard about a show starting in Washington, D.C. And this was right after September 11th. And that was when I thought, you know, maybe I can stand to get out of New York for a little bit. To be clear, though, was the job that you were interviewing for at the beginning, did that have with it on camera? No. I was going to be providing Mike and Tony with as much information they would want and then Tony or Mike said it at one point, we're going to make tons of mistakes, even though you give us this pack of research. And Kornheiser says, I don't even want that pack. Get that out of my face. So then it just became a, a talking research with him. We should have the corrections page like we have it in the newspaper. Those words were said. I can't remember who exactly said it, but it was unanimous with everybody. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was Tony. And I'm pretty sure Mike said, I want to call somebody boy on TV. So we'll call you Stat Boy. You need to understand the era that I grew up in Regardless of the style column and regardless of all the things that I did at the Washington Post and at other places, I was a sports writer in my head and my heart. That's, I may have wanted to be something else, but I accept that I was a sports writer. When you were a sports writer and you went into locker rooms, you looked at the radio guys as completely beneath you completely beneath you because they would they would just sell their soul for 30 seconds worth of radio junk and they'd interview a million different people and they'd be pressing buttons all the time on these gigantic recorders and they were just they were low-rent guys and tv they were just pretty boys that's all they were they were ken dolls they had no knowledge of sports 
They, they had no gravity. No, 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 no. Sports writers looked at themselves as in the Tom Wolf phrase, the top of the cigarette. Of course they did. And at that period of time, ESPN hadn't hired every sports writer in America yet. I mean, this was still a very new thing. And mostly what they had, in my opinion, was pretty boys who didn't know how to be reporters. So no, it was not anything I would covet. If, if in my wildest dreams, what I would covet would be something, you know, like the Tonight Show. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, to do something like that. But no, not, not to be on television doing sports. No. It was a real struggle because while they were attached to it, they weren't signed. So we had to go up and develop a staff and develop a show without them actually having committed to the show. So what this did is it limited our access to Tony and Mike. We had to build a show based off of what we knew of them rather than of them sitting in a room with us and helping us creatively develop everything. So I would go by Tony's radio show, which at that point was shot in the ESPN zone in downtown D.C., and I would just try and grab five or ten minutes of his time between the end of his radio show and the time he got picked up in a tiny convertible by a driver and just get him to give me something. And he would always say things like, I don't know who's going to do your show. I really hope it's you, and I expect it's you. And he said, I don't know if that's going to work out. So I've now started hiring people. They've started moving down to Washington, D.C., and I take Matthew Kelleher, who's the show producer, with me to go see Tony. And Tony finishes his radio show, puts on his sunglasses inside. We try and walk with him out to this parking lot, this interior parking lot. He's very, very sort of off-puttish, like, just like, you guys keep going. You know, maybe you'll have a show and maybe you won't. Maybe it'll have me and maybe it won't. He gets in the convertible, off they drive. And as we're walking back, Matthew Kelleher turns to me and says, you are going to have some significant talent management issues. <laughs> I remember Tony announcing two things when I walked in the office with maybe the three other employees we had at the time. Where are all the adults, is what he said, because I was in my early 20s. Rydell may have been, you know, 32 at that point. Kelleher may have been 27 at that point. Shannon Suzuki may have been, you know, 27 at that point. And the other was rent, don't buy. Which was was a nice thing to hear when I just moved from New York. (laughs) Yeah, comforting. (laughs) So, Tony, we finally, he gets signed. I think Mike and Tony signed about two weeks before the show was scheduled to launch. And Tony came in to look at the offices. And there was dual response that he had to the offices. One is, it was childlike on Christmas. He could not believe that here he would have an office with a bathroom in it that included a shower. He was giddy about this. But then he came into the bullpen area, the newsroom, full of all of these young people who had left their jobs to come down and commit to this new show, which they knew was high risk, especially those who came from Bristol, where their future seemed assured, or at least their long-term employment seemed assured. And Tony, as he's leaving, stops in front of the room and says, I don't think this show will last three months. But it doesn't matter to me because I have three other jobs. And then he walked out and everyone stared at me. And of course, the looks on their faces were, I don't even have one other job. So 
So that was slightly terrifying. Mike Wilbon then comes in and he looks around and he says, this all looks great. I think this will be wonderful. And I said, really? Because Tony came in here and said the whole show wasn't going to last three months and we're all a little bit unnerved by that. And Mike said, please, with Tony Kornheiser, the sky is always falling and it doesn't mean anything. And that was the greatest piece of advice I got in terms of working with Tony is just that he needs to vent and just to let him do it. And having Mike in that same room with Tony was always a wonderful counterbalance for our own senses of sanity. Did the fact that Will Bond was coming along for the ride, was that a little bit more comforting for you? I love him. I loved Mike. I mean, I used to write columns and refer to him as Mike, that Toddlin Town Wilbon. I worked him into my columns for years before this ever happened. The moment he got to the post, I loved him. And one of the things you love most about him is he has the skin of an alligator. I mean, you cannot get under his skin. Right. He's so tough in that regard. So you can make fun of him and it would, he would take it in a very jovial manner. And we got along great. Yeah, that made it much easier. But again, you need to remember that he knew about it before I did. So, I mean, I felt that I didn't really understand what it was when it started. We start full-time in early September, and the show is on the air in mid-October. So that doesn't give you a lot of lead time to design a set. And Tony and Mike aren't signed during the development time. So we just kind of have to make things up. And I don't even remember there being extensive conversations about the set. All I remember saying is it needs to be a set where these guys can turn toward one another and talk to one another. Whereas most of the sets that had been built by ESPN, of course, were based around SportsCenter. So they were two people facing forward, facing the camera rather than facing each other. And the problem is that when you're building a set where two people look at each other, they actually have to be really close to one another because when the camera goes on them, it always makes them look further apart than they actually are. So this is the one sort of directive I remember making. We need these guys to stare at each other, to look at each other. And the set design people who were terrific were really working out of a mold where they were used to doing sports center type sets. So the set comes and gets delivered and it is built like a newscaster set. There's monitor holes in the desk where, you know, anchors can look down and look at the monitors to see the uh, VO that's playing that's right in front of them if they were looking straight ahead. There's nothing if they were to be looking at one another. And then also the middle piece that separates them was really fat so that they were really pushed away from each other. So desperately, we had them rebuild the sort of centerpiece so these guys could be much closer together. I'd come out of a background in television where the way that local television stations always tried to improve their ratings, the first thing they always tried to do is just change the set. And it never really seemed to do anything. And I always thought the focus was way too much on the set. So I was fine. As long as the guys had two chairs to sit in and there was even just a swinging light bulb above them, I was pretty confident we were going to have a show because their dynamic was so strong. So I was okay with what they put in. And they put in the set, and it looked fine. But to me, as each show went by, I felt it looked a little too clean for the raggediness of the show and their interaction and the back and forth. 
And luckily, being in Washington, there weren't a lot of executives that were roaming the halls. In fact, there were none. So, Basil, did you get any parachute gear yet? My friend, I did get them. They are incredible. Stepped up to the plate. I okay. did step up to the plate. But hold on, Jim. How did this company start anyway? So, we did a little bit of research, and it turns out that their founder and CEO, a woman by the name of Ariel Kay, had gone over to Europe, and while she was there, she was sleeping on these sheets that she thought were the most comfortable sheets she'd ever slept on. And she came back to the United States, and she started looking for sheets that were like the ones she had slept on in Europe, except that she couldn't find any. Really? So, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm on a plane ride home from Europe, not that I do it that often, but uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about how tired I am and that I don't want to go back to sleep. This woman obviously was thinking, okay, I think I got to start a new company. <laughs> I feel like an underachiever here. She's a go-getter. Yeah, she's a go-getter. So she started in 2014 and they started with a bunch of bedding. Wow. They're still made in Europe. All the parachute sheets are made in a family-owned factory in northern Portugal, owned and operated by the founder's great-grandchildren. That's pretty cool. I think we need to do a road trip to Portugal. I think we should go. Bob, you mentioned you had the Venice sheets. I have the Venice sheets. So what's the deal with them? Well, they're just soft. And I got to say, the best part was when I got the package sent to me at home, it was an amazing unpackaging thing. The package with a bag, and you get it's an event, taking these sheets out and, (laughs) and, and unveiling them. Very nice presentation. Here's the deal. Parachute is so sure you'll love their sheets that they're offering a 60-night trial. Trust me, I'm not going to need that. Yeah. I mean, you won't need it, trust me, but it's really cool. That they but do count it. the nights just to get... No, no I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that literally means that if you don't love them, you just send them back, no questions asked, to take them back. Wow. And um, here's the cool thing. They're going to donate their return bedding to Habitat for Humanity. So you send it back, you don't like it for some reason, it's going to a good cause. That's very cool. I like that. That is a great thing. Unfortunately, not a lot of people are returning them because they feel so good. I was just going to say... <laughs> No. Come on, Parachute. What kind of deal is that? No one's going to be returning your sheets. So if you want to check this Parachute deal out, visit ParachuteHome.com slash Origins. That's ParachuteHome.com slash Origins for free shipping and returns. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast let's talk espn geography shall we if there's a media company in the world that has been defined by where it's located more than espn please let me know at james at jamesandrewmiller.com i'll tell you now i'm gonna beg to disagree i am not much for begging ESPN was founded in Bristol, Connecticut. 
where its headquarters still stand. Bristol was a rather grim place for ESP employees in the early years, and it's not exactly a cultural mecca now. But what the location did provide was a union-free environment, an us-versus-them, rural-versus-city mentality, and lots of distance from its various owners through the decades. It also helped employees become incredibly attached to the network. Once they bought property and put their kids in those Connecticut schools, moving for another job was a hell of a lot harder than if you were working for a network in New York City and went to a different one across the park. Truth be known, there wasn't much cooperation from the Bristol end about this whole concept of this new show. And the creativity part of it all really did not come from Bristol in any way. Matter of fact, most people in Bristol thought that this was just some cockamamie idea from Shapiro that couldn't possibly work and, in fact, would fail. And they made fun of us. I'll never forget that stuff. They made fun of us. They made fun of the people who left Bristol for this show. Now, they may have forgotten they did that or said, oh, we were just joking. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Neither one of us was going to Bristol. <laughs> that, that wasn't happening. And so they would have done it with two other people and maybe it would have been as successful or more successful or less successful. But we weren't going to Bristol. I wasn't moving my family to Bristol. I wouldn't move myself to Bristol. On a dare, which is essentially what this was in 2001, with a career that was fully flowered, no. There's no chance of that. If we had done the show in Bristol, we would not be on the show for more than three years. I mean, we would have successfully gotten ourselves fired by screaming at somebody. Or When I learned how lucky we were was pretty early on, and ESPN had a show that was casually based on American Idol called Dream Jobs. And they'd asked me to do it, and I was happy to do it, because I thought it was a good idea. I was up in New York on a Sunday night, and Stuart Scott was the host, and I was one of the panelists. And I really liked the idea of it, so I happily went up there. Well, it was an hour-long show, and the PTI show was put together, not counting Mike and me, or Mike and I. I think there were eight full-time workers, not counting us. And we put together a half hour every single day. So I assumed that that's the way television was made, because I don't have any other experience in television. And I go to do this show, which is an hour a week, and it's maybe four minutes are live, and the rest is packaged over the course of the three hours that we're there. And there's 70 people working on this show. <laughs> well, whoa, whoa. If there's seven, see, the PTI show, everybody does everything. It's democratic. Everybody can stand up and yell at anybody that they want to. We all understand that everybody works hard. And this show had so many people that you had to clear everything through. I just thought, wow, you, you can be strangled by the amount of people working on a particular show. And then it occurred to me that every show in Bristol is probably like that because there's so many people working there all the time because we always heard about the meetings. We have no meetings here. We have no meetings. We just do the show. We heard about all the meetings, and we heard about all the influences, and, and both Mike and I just thought, we're, we're just so much better off here. And plus, we have, in Kelleher and Ride Home, we have people who put up the shield, and all the bullets bounce off the shield, so nothing ever, ever hurts Mike and never hurts me. And we've been greatly fortunate in that regard. But the actual greatest fortune is that Mark Shapiro decided this was going to be his first opinion show. So why not have it in the, in the scene of the Sunday morning opinion shows, the political shows that he grew up watching? Why not have it in Washington? Well, I'll take you back to when I was still in Bristol and was considering the job. And an email went up sort of announcing the show. 
And I was standing behind two colleagues who were, I guess, uh, associate producers at the time, but guys I had known for a while. And they, they didn't know I was being considered for the job. And they saw this announcement for the show come out, and they said to each other, oh, my God, what a disaster. Who would take this job? This show is not going to last three months. You know, who's going to watch these two old guys on TV talking about sports? Almost everybody that I spoke to was very hesitant. They were unsure why I was doing this. And they were saying to me, you know, I had just become a producer on SportsCenter. They were saying, man, I hope you're going to get an assurance that you can get your job back. A couple of weeks before launch, I went up to Bristol. I think it's one of the three times that I've been to Bristol over 16 years. And I ended up having dinner with Trey Wingo and my friend Chris McKendry. And Trey Wingo said to me, can I ask you something about your show? Because there's something I don't understand about it. And I said, sure. And he said, all of our research tells us that what people want to see are faster pace, highlights, dunks, music. And what they don't want to see is two old guys prattling on about the day's events in sports. So what makes you think that this is going to work? And I said to him, because nobody showed me that research. <laughs> I mean, we had just gotten further and far enough down the line that I was just sort of making a bet. And the bet that I was making and that I still make today on all these shows is the bet on people. If you look at movies, if you read a magazine story, if you read a novel, if you watch a TV show, what connects people to any of those forms of media? or art is the relationship they have with the characters and what the relationships those characters have with each other. And fundamentally, what I had with Tony and Mike was a great one. It was great chemistry. They were indelible characters. And so my job was simply to capture that, to elevate them, to support that, to put them in the best light so that Tony and Mike and their relationship together would be compelling enough that people at home would be able to develop a relationship with them. We had two weeks to prep for the show, and within one week, Tony and Mike were pretty confident they didn't need to continue to help the camera guys work out their shots, which is a very important thing. So I sat in and I was, I'm not Tony Kornheiser, but I'm playing him on TV. And I was doing it with Josh Maurer, our intern, opposite each other. We still have this film somewhere. They're going to whip it out at some point to really embarrass me. I did the show and I did the show in a way that demonstrated, I'm sure to Matt Kelleher and Eric Rideholm, that I knew we were simpatico of what we were doing, even though I was tired a week before, even though I was 23. I also have to say this, I knew Kornheiser before I sat in that room. The sensibility really. was familiar. I knew the sensibility. He's my uncle. He's the guy from where I grew up. You know, he's my Jewish uncle. I knew I could go at him, and I did that early on. And he and, would love it. And he might love it. It might end horribly for me as well. I think we did maybe only about three or four rehearsals, but even on the first day, I remember we had a production meeting with them where we went over the topics, and Tony, you know, very, very guarded about it. He sat down sort of with an attitude of, what are these two guys going to make us talk about? And what we sat down w wanting to do was put topics in front of them that they wanted to talk about. That was our only goal. And so from that first production meeting, we had a very positive meeting. But 
their chemistry, their ability to go back and forth, their ability to work together to sort of get at each other, but end every conversation with a smile, or at least end every show with a smile, so that it really seemed like two friends just talking, which is what it is. That was apparent really early on. So whether I thought it would be a hit or not, no, but did I think we had a show really from the first rehearsal? Absolutely, because you could just tell that these guys were going to be able to do this and do it easily. Do you remember your expectations in terms of whether the show was going to be a success, how long it would last? Because Tony was convinced from day one that it was going to be so temporary that... Tony's convinced everything he does is going to be temporary (laughs) or not good. Tony would hand in magazine pieces which were brilliant. You know, he would just say, oh, this is the best I could do. You might not like it. You know, that's the way Tony is. That's his nature. Even viewers who didn't watch ESPN, habitually, occasionally, or accidentally, would soon cross paths with production innovations dreamed up for PTI. Most indelible of which was the menu, the trickle down one side of the screen. The menu defied tradition by telling viewers which stories would be popping up. Previous thinking was to keep such things secret, so viewers wouldn't have the option of avoiding items likely to bore them. The menu may seem simple, but it's been picked up everywhere and will likely still be running hither and thither on channels and networks long after PTI has passed away. Jim Cullen told me that we were going to be judged not just based off of our rating success uh, individually as a show, but how we carried viewers over into the 6 o'clock Sports Center, the lead-in to Sports Center, the show that had been there, which was up close over the years, the ratings had diminished on that. And because that lead-in had diminished, the 6 o'clock Sports Center ratings had diminished. And so Jim was quite clear that this was one of the ways we were going to be judged. And so it was always in my head, how do we carry these viewers over? How do we get viewers not just to start with us at 5.30, but um, to finish with us at 6 so that they can begin watching SportsCenter? And I hadn't really thought much about the notion of teases. You know, like every show has them. You know, it opens up and it says, today, and they list all the stories, and then they go into the first story, and then at the end of every break, coming up, and they tell you the stories that are coming up. And I was like, you know, that's that's fine. That's good. But is there some way we might be able to tease what's coming in the show side by side along with the show, not just in these concentrated areas? And so that was one of the foundational ideas of the rundown, which is rather than just list the topic we're talking about, list all the topics that are to come. And in that way, if you didn't like the topic we were on, you could look on the rundown and say, okay. But in a minute or two minutes, they, they're going to be talking about something that I am interested in, so I'm going to stick around. And so as this goes, I wondered or I decided to make a bet that that rundown would help as a show-long tease. Eric had this idea, which was sort of, I think, the, the revolutionary idea of the show, which was to put the rundown on the screen. He explained it to me in that, you know, as producers, people behind the scenes, we get to see what the skeleton of the show is. But generally, that's hidden from the viewer. And he wanted to flip that and put the skeleton on the outside. And we thought that that would be something that would say to people, okay, I might not like this topic, but I'll like the next. So we were really committed to that. Probably two days before we launched, we were having a real difficult time executing the rundown. And Eric and I said to each other, we, we have to ditch this. And it was Jim Cohen who originally put the show together that just said, absolutely not. No way. He's like, we have to put this show on with that rundown. That's really going to be the key that catches everybody's eye. So to his credit, he fought for it. I think we would have probably, just in an effort to get a clean show on the air, 
we might have gone without it at least at the start and given us a week or two to get on the air and then come and then added it once we started. But Jim really just said, no, we have to have it. I looked around the dial and I looked to, say, MSNBC or I looked to CNN or I looked at any of the places that did have talking heads all the time. You would arrive and there would be a lower third cut line that would tell you what the people were talking about. But I had no idea whether I was getting into the middle of the discussion, uh, whether it was the beginning of the discussion, whether it was the end of the discussion. So as a viewer, I felt uneasy. I was like, I got to make a decision within four or five seconds whether I'm going to invest myself in this conversation or not. Um, I have no idea where I stand in it and where they stand in it. So as I looked at that, I said, that's a flaw. We can do better than that. And by showing people not just what we were talking about right now, but what we were about to talk about and what you just missed us talking about, the notion was that it was a greater service to the viewer and that it gave more reasons for the viewer to stick around. The rundown is widely used now across many shows, but I think one thing that gets overlooked is the importance of the clock. And that was something that Matthew Kelleher really pushed and developed on the show. I mean, we had talked about putting a clock on the entire show as a countdown to the 6 o'clock Sports Center, but he said, let's do it on every individual topic. And what ends up happening there is while you watch TV, there's an emotional feeling of time, right? You can start watching, you're like, I'm getting bored. I'm going to see, especially at that time, what else is on television. But when there's a clock on it, the rational side of your brain will look at it, and rather than feeling 15 seconds of pain, your rational brain might out-argue your emotional side and say, okay, but there's only a minute 15 left, and I know rationally a minute 15 is a very short window of time. I can just sit here and watch that clock trickle down to zero to wait to get to this next topic. And so it was a way to hopefully and ideally uh, reduce the emotional evaluation of the topic we were talking about and elevate the rational appreciation and understanding of the dynamic of the show at that particular point. Now, a lot of people give you credit for coming up with the idea of the clock on the rundown. Can you talk about your contributions? What we were working with was two guys and Tony and Mike who had never been on TV before. So one of the things they said early on was, we can't have you guys talking in our ear with directions about what story to go to and where we're going to next and how much time till the break. Tony had done radio, so he was maybe a little bit more prepared for that, but neither of them had really done this amount of television, so they wanted us to be sort of hands-off. Well, we also knew we wanted the show to be fast-paced, so how could we give them a cue without having to talk to them. So one of the early iterations was a stoplight where it was green light and then there'd be a yellow light when it was time for them to start wrapping up and then a red light end the conversation and move to the next topic because we knew we wanted to hit a lot of stuff and go quickly. Well, that was sort of difficult to actually pull off. And so, I, you know, going back to Eric's idea of what the producers have on the, in the background and what the viewer doesn't get to see, it just made sense to me was, well, why don't we just put the clock up there and then they'll be able to glance over and see it. And this is a clock we as producers would have in our TV rundown, you know, on our computers as we're sitting in the control room. And then they'll be able to see the clock and they'll be able to move on. And then someone, and I can't recall who, might have been Kornheiser, just said, just ring a bell like the end of a boxing round. And so we found a boxing bell sound effect. And when it hit zero, we hit that. And it allowed Tony and Mike to concentrate on the conversation and then literally get an audio cue of a bell going off to know that, okay, that's over. And let's move to the next thing. I do remember discussing it with people in Bristol before the show started. And the reaction I got was that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard 
why would you tell people what's in the rundown beforehand? And I said, well, maybe because they'll like something and they want to watch because of that. And they looked at me like I was just some old newspaper guy who didn't understand television. And we agreed to disagree. And then, of course, we did it. And now the whole world does it. Mark was just always pushing us. I mean, he had a confidence that it was going to work in all of our sort of concerns about the small minutia of, oh, the rundown's not working. Oh, you know, this or this problem of starting up the show. It was almost like it didn't concern him. You know, he just sort of had his eye on the big picture. He wanted us to do an hour for our first episode. And he was pushing it to the point where we actually had to almost dial it back a little bit to be sure we could get 30 minutes sort of of competent television on the air on our debut show. People give you credit for convincing Shapiro not to have the show be an hour. Yes. So do you remember that? I, just, I mean, I just called him up. I mean, I had, I had no sense that Mark Shapiro was as exalted as he was. He was just a guy who filmed that 50 Greatest Athletes series that I thought was brilliant. Sports Century, right? Yeah, but he did every part of that. He did from A to Z, from soup to nuts, he did all of it. And I used to think, I used to refer to him all the time, that ferret Shapiro, he's always dragging us up to New York. He's always saying, you got to do this. You got to do the Chris Everett one. You got to do the Bill Russell one. You got to do the Will Chamberlain one. Leave me alone already. Enough, 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 and stuff like that. So while I knew that he was very, very smart and had come from fabulous journalism genetics and all of that, I looked at Walsh, who was my boss for a number of years, as the godlike deus ex machina of my life. And Mark Shapiro was 20 years younger than I am. Leave me alone. What are you talking about? I said, can't be an hour. Hour's insane. You can't keep talking that long. And it took 10 seconds to convince him that a half hour was better than an hour. He was not wedded to it at all. The first show we did, which was a half hour special on October 17th, Wednesday, October 17th, we actually taped, I believe, two segments the night before because we were so sure that the equipment failure was going to prevent us from going ahead and putting a clean show together and taping four full segments on Wednesday. So we taped two segments ahead of time. All we had to do was tape two on Wednesday. We did it, but the machine would just crap out. The bells wouldn't ring. The clock wouldn't run. All of those types of things. So in addition to just focusing on Tony and Mike, we had to focus on all of this technical apparatus, this visual apparatus that we had, this graphical wrapper that we had around the show. And I was concerned at the end of the first show that the structure and the format that we had put in place was detracting from the chemistry of Tony and Mike rather than elevating it. I felt the bells, the rundown, the fast pace of it, the fact that they were talking over each other a lot made the show inaccessible, made the show very difficult to process on the part of viewers. And I got a phone call from one of my best friends uh, who I worked with at The Motley Fool, who I always knew was going to give it to me straight. And he told me, I don't know, guy. Like, the whole thing seemed incredibly manic. And so I came in on Thursday, and I sat down with Tony and Mike and uh, and Matt Kelleher, and I said, guys, uh, I don't know what you're hearing, what you're feeling, but I'm willing to scrap everything. I'm willing to scrap the rundown. I'm willing to scrap the clock. I'm willing to do it all because I just don't want anything interfering and getting in the way with who you guys are and with what you guys bring. And Mike Wilbon said, 
actually, I've just heard from all my friends that they thought it was super cool, that that was like one of the best parts of the show. And then I heard from Jim Cohen, and Jim Cohen said, no, we are going ahead with this rundown and with this clock because this is what makes the show pop and look different. And other people are going to have to basically catch up to where we are. And then I got a phone call with Mark Shapiro. And Mark Shapiro came on, and I was terrified because Mark really knows television. Mark knows that he'll watch a half hour of television, and he'll find the three things that need to be improved, even when 30 other things are going great. And got on a call with Mark, and I was thought for sure, okay, well, here it comes. He's going to shred it. And this voice at the other end of the line said, I thought you guys did a great job. Just take the natural sound off of the videos because it competes too much with Tony and Mike, and I can't really hear them, and I just want to hear more of them. That was the big takeaway um, from my call with him. So suddenly I went from feeling terrible after Wednesday night's show to feeling pretty good on Friday and just focused on getting on Monday's show, which was the start then of what's been close to 3,500 shows now. So you asked about the first appearance. I think Tony called the soccer field. He didn't call it a field, and he didn't call it a pitch. He called it something else, so I got to correct him on that. Soccer has long been one of my great corrections for him because he he always gets it wrong. I remember it wasn't a great appearance for me. I remember doing something that was a little inside to try to make them feel comfortable. We talked about uh, a correction there. I was providing energy and hype. I was providing youth, and I was actually getting to a point where we got to something that was untapped, and Jim, let's be honest, somehow still is untapped on shows of this nature. How does every political show on TV go 30 minutes without a corrections segment? Where are the errors and omissions on all the shows on CNN, MSNBC, Fox? Go across the board. Where is that? And I drill down in that the accountability... Those hosts, those guests, those panelists are afraid of that. They're afraid to acknowledge that they got something wrong. Tony and Mike never in a million years were afraid. They they loved being able to pound it to the other guy that you got this one wrong. But through the years, they've never, ever shied away from being called out on national TV for a mistake they made. And that is, of course, to their credit, and I think what's preventing the entire television industry from being better. If we had had drinks the first night that the show went on the air, mm-hmm. talked about your expectations for the show, mm-hmm. what was in your mind right then? I didn't have any. I said to Tony, I'll tell you the exact line that actually happened. He can tell you this too, and maybe he already has. I said to Tony, we signed a three-year deal, and two of the years are guaranteed. And so the worst possible case scenario is either we're not any good at this, and they get rid of us, or we're good at it, and nobody cares, and they get rid of it. And we got two years of money, right? Two years guaranteed. For two sports writers. And I said, that's the worst case scenario. And Tony goes, really? That's your worst case scenario? He goes, that's my best case scenario. <laughs> that literally, that conversation, I don't know where it took place. It probably took place in the Post newsroom. And so I didn't assess. I don't assess the show now. I don't. Everybody has the way they deal, they work. I don't assess it. I want to do the best show we can do that day, and it's gone. It's the greatest thing about daily communication, whether it's writing a column or doing a television show. You got the next day. I sound like a baseball manager now, but you got the next day until they tell you that there's no more days. So I didn't have any expectations. My expectations were, I'm going to bring the best I can bring to this every day. And then somebody else will assess it and tell us whether it's working or not. Do you remember if you got much feedback from Bristol right afterwards? No, I don't recall getting much because the assumption is the show won't work. One, it's on 530 in the afternoon. No one watches television at 530 in the afternoon. 
And two, you know, this is just one of those stupid Shapiro things, and it, it won't work. It's just two sports writers yelling at each other. Who wants that? We did a game within the first couple of weeks where the guys held faces on sticks in front of their faces. And after they were done, I was like, I think I'm going to just tape them to the set so that they can provide a little bit of background up there just to mess it up a little bit, to make the set look a little junkier and maybe to give a little history to the set. So if you are a viewer and you watched on Monday, then on Thursday you see this head behind them, uh, you know, this like cardboard cutout of some athlete's head, and you can see, oh, yes, I was there when they put that head up or when they used that on the show, and it gave some sense of the history of the show, accumulated history of the show. And if you didn't know where the head came from, maybe it's because you missed out and you shouldn't want to miss out on any day of PTI. So the heads just start accumulating, and nobody says anything up in Bristol. Like, nobody writes me a note and says, what are you doing? Or if they do, I just sort of pshaw it away, and I've got too many other things to worry about just getting the show on the air every single day. And the stuff just starts building, and I start, rather than just having this very clean row of heads in the background, I'm like, well, I'm just going to start taping the heads to each other. And they start building this collage in the background, and soon it starts to dominate. We start getting sent toys from viewers, uh, little mementos, and even like toy companies start sending us things. Like I remember we got Elmo's like every six months or so, and we'd look at it and we're just like, dad, just throw it in the background. So we would just throw it onto the desk and suddenly we had not just all of these cutout heads, but we had all of this sort of just weird pieces of just trifles and trinkets that we put all around them. And I just kind of liked it. It felt like there was a living history to the set rather than one that had been designed in a lab. And that's what I wanted. That was the feel that I wanted. And we just sort of stumbled into it. After the first or second or third show, and I don't know which one, I remember Mike saying to me, we need to spend more time on a topic. We need to have more in-depth discussion. We need to go back and forth a little bit more. And I said to him, I don't think so. I mean, I just felt we were, you know, an inch deep, a mile wide and an inch deep. We were general sports columnists. We knew a little bit about everything, but we didn't know all that much. I think we're running as fast as we can, and this is the way to go. I think let's just be quick and let's move. Because I was immediately influenced by Eric and the way he perceived the show. And if there was anything I was sure of, it was that I was going to hold on to Eric Rideholm for dear life. And he wanted that quickness. There was a day early on in PTI's history where I took Tony and Mike to a car show. The auto show was a block away, and we just wandered through the auto show with cameras on them. And they just talked about their memories of cars whether they like this car, whether they don't like this car. And we shot them for a couple of hours and we came back and it took us a few days to knock out what ended up being about a three and a half minute long piece. It took so many man hours to get this piece done. Right. And we ran it and I looked at it and I said, it's good, but I don't think it's as good as us just giving them a topic on the show and having them talk for three and a half minutes on the set. So... I don't know if we need to be like have this level of ambition. Just let them go and be themselves. And we that was the last tape piece we've ever done. One of the things I enjoyed and I had an incredible ability to do because it was granted by Tony and Mike and Eric and Matt is let's just 
throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. I mean, I we don't credit these sort of things and we don't really think about it. I think I just said, let's dress them up as cops. We'll do good cop, bad cop. I think I said that. Maybe Matt said that. Maybe Eric said that. And we're doing good cop, bad cop, which is one of the fun games. Whenever you get Will Bond tipping that cap in the middle, it's amazing. Tony's wearing earrings. And, and believe me, those earrings go on his ear, and it's always a 10 on the pain scale for him. I mean, it's, it's Kenny Stone's giving birth, and Tony Kornheiser wearing earrings for Fortune Teller. I mean, there was a day I think I walked him saying, we got to get them judges' wigs, and we can do judge and jury, you know? We dressed them up as mechanics one day for oil change. I think we only did that once or twice. We all know what our best game is. I mean, it's, it's role play. Was there a time during the first maybe six months or a year you picked a time frame where you, you got off the set and you said, you know what, I think this may work? I mean, despite the fact you weren't trying to have expectations. No, I didn't. I, I would, it would happen only because people would see it and say stuff to me. I'd get phone calls from people. I'm not even sure I was text messaging in 2001. I probably wasn't. So I had to get a phone call or an email. And I would hear from people. We replaced a show, we replaced that interview show, the Roy Firestone interview show, which had, you know, had run its course, I'm sure, yeah. which was getting, I think at the time, about a point three. And what they said to us was, when you get a point three, you're okay. Get a point four, we're pretty happy. Get a point five, we're really happy. Get a point six, we'll carry around on chairs. Well, we were getting that pretty early on. And people said they really liked it, really on, and people we knew who were not television-inclined really liked it and this was months in not not years in months in and so wow we can do this we can do this there was a moment we had a technical you know snafu at some point and we heard from somebody who heard from somebody that george w bush was watching the show and it's like what happened did we lose the feed or something like that and we heard that for the first time like wow that's pretty cool you know Tony and Mike came from the newspaper business. So early on, we got, I think, you know, some pretty preferential press from newspapers. Uh, this is pre-internet or pre-social you know, social media days, and so who knows how it would have been now. But we got a lot of good reviews, and so that helped us with a sort of a gentle entry into it. And I would say within the first six months, we were consistently getting the we'll carry you around on chairs number. Was there anything that happened during the first year that you thought, Hey, you know what? I really don't feel comfortable. I don't like the dressing up. That's Tony. That, his natural personality leans towards show. Mine doesn't. We're both products of all that we are growing up. And I didn't grow up X number of minutes from Broadway mm. or thinking I was going to be a comedian or on TV or a showman or tell jokes. That's him. I don't want to dress up. I'm a product of where I come from. And, and a large part of that is, you know, the Medill School of Journalism, which is about serious stuff. And I don't care for that. I don't care for the other stuff. And I understand the need. Eric understands television. Tony and I don't. We don't. I don't try to understand TV. I understand content. Right. And I understand what it is I want to say and the message I want to get across to a certain audience. But trying to understand television, I have no interest in it. It's too whimsical. One of my worst days was when the people who ran SportsCenter told me they wanted to have a part of the first segment in the 6 o'clock SportsCenter be a PTI segment. And I said, okay, but I'm a little concerned. I don't want this to hurt the chemistry of the dynamics of the show, but I'm sure we can do it and, you know, I'll make it happen. 
and it wasn't that easy a sales job. Eventually it happened, but it wasn't easy. It was sort of awkward. Why? What made it such a bad day? Because when you mentioned it to Tony and Mike, they hated the idea? They hated the idea because they had to work an extra 10, 15 minutes, if that. And I do think that it was sort of Bristol sticking their nose into what they were doing. And there was always some resentment on the part of the PTI people that the Bristol people were not on board from the start and didn't buy into it. And then all of a sudden when the show worked, embraced it and wanted to share in the results. The story of Pardon the Interruption is worth telling not because of its melodrama, but rather for the lack of it. What does it mean to work in an egoless environment, or at least at a place where egos aren't on parade inside the office? It means that the only agenda colleagues care about is what's good for the show, not good for just one person. It means that no one is trying to grab credit, particularly at the expense of someone else. It means that no one gets thrown under the bus. In the few instances when things went awry at PTI, Ridehome would take the blame even if he wasn't directly involved, because in the great Truman tradition, he believed in the buck stopping with him. The natural extension of this means PTI was not just a fun place to work, but a healthy one. Imagine being on your way to the office, knowing that when you get there, your boss will respect you and your colleagues will hold you in esteem. During the day, naturally, there will be tough, stressful moments, but no one is going to take things personally. It will be all about surviving together and making the show as great as it can be, because everyone involved takes great pride in their work. Hey, I'm not feeding you sugar-coated pablum here. PTI was never perfect, but from the beginning, it has been a show that reflects much about what makes for good television and what constitutes effective and exemplary workplace behavior as well. Tell me a good day and a bad day at PTI. Can't remember a bad day. I mean, can't remember a bad. I can't remember a bad day because I was always no. I'm always with people that I like, and they like our work. Just think, Tony Kornheiser just said, I can't remember a bad no, day. No, can't remember a bad day. I can remember the anxiety about doing it. No, no, there's no bad days. I didn't even have bad days when I was a writer. I'm going to be 70. I like my jobs, plural. I went to high school with guys. All the lawyers hate their jobs. They've probably all quit. All the doctors hate their jobs because of what they've become with paperwork and they're not really doctors anymore. It's not what they signed up for. You know who likes their jobs? The businessmen because they win and they lose every single day and they lose a lot and then they win a lot. It's the businessmen. It's the people that are in the cage and they like being in the cage. I've always sort of thought you're asking me to do a radio, an audio show, whatever they call that now, and you're asking me to be on TV and so I'm in the cage again. So I get out of the cage without being clawed. That's exciting. And it's always sort of fun. I mean, you know, people, don't they all feel the same way? I would bet that if there was any jealousy of this show in the rest of ESPN, it would be, you know, that we're here. And that it's a small, staffed, democratic, wonderful, everybody picks up the bucket and bails the water at the same time. Yeah, that's like seven reasons to hate you right there. For them, for them to hate you. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't have any of that. Right. I understand that. Right. I understand that. Sorry for them. Happy for us. The only reason I didn't want to do PTI was because I didn't want to do anything that was every day. The only thing I've not liked in my career is covering baseball. Why? Because it's every day. I don't see anybody 160 straight days. Nobody. Seriously. Don't. 
I was like, the only thing I didn't like was baseball. I wound up getting off that beat, getting back onto football and basketball and things that were broken up and you weren't with one team all the time. And I realized very early in my life, I get bored. I don't want to do anything every day. And I had to make my peace with doing something every day. And one of the things, that, like you said, is, is fuel for my fire is the change up. And it's the same, but it's not the same. I may go into a studio, but I may go after a NBA shoot around at 11 a.m., in which case I've gotten to talk to some guys or something, or I've been on the road, or I've been at a game the previous day. For a lot of that time, I was still covering pro football. And then a lot of that time, still now covering pro basketball. And so, yeah, it took a minute to take a deep breath and say, wow. The most important thing, I think, to Eric, maybe I'm wrong, is that he knows how important it is for people to come to work happy. People want to work. People want to be in that environment. It's a happy environment. It's a creative environment. It's a respectful environment. And he just has a way of getting everyone to be part of a team. I don't think very few people have left PTI since it started 16 years ago. I mean, it's a small staff, but even the people he had, they tend to stay there because working for that show is just a fun thing to do. And working for Eric Rideholm is a fun thing to do. And I think Eric just instinctively understands that's an important part of managing a team, making it fun. Through 16 years, the thing I always go back to when I think about why is this still fun for me, why is this still a success, is even on days where there may be squabbles, there may be disagreements about what stories to do or whatever in the course of a day can be an annoying little part of putting these together. Every time Tony and Mike do the show together and us as a crew working with them, when the show's over, everybody leaves happy. There are other things in television and other things in radio and other things in print journalism that are jobs that require you to blend in in ways that sometimes are, don't feel right, that require you to submerge who you are for the greater good of a bunch of other people. And in this case, Eric Rideholm essentially just said, you just be you. We're going to work with you. That's why we have this for you too. And because Mike and I had known each other and worked together for 20 years, this did not require either of us doing anything that felt awkward or odd or difficult. This show has never felt difficult. I don't know if it's that way in regular TV. How important was PTI for you while you were running programming and later programming and production? I mean, what do you think it gave ESPN? It was the lightning rod for our ratings comeback. Obviously, from a live events perspective, we got Wimbledon, we got the NBA, and that had a lot to do with turning around the ratings picture. But exactly by design, this show was a 5.30 p.m. show. And when it hit, and it only took a few months to really hit, it lit up and handed off to SportsCenter, and SportsCenter at 6 o'clock built upon the 5.30. And that really catapulted the entire evening. But it was way beyond my expectations. When we launched this, sales said they couldn't sell it. Research said it would only do a 0.3 or a 0.4 household rating. We did a 0.4 out of the gate. And then quickly, as you know, got up to 101112. I mean, significant numbers. We never saw over a one rating in my time there for a six o'clock sports center. Only until after, pardon the interruption, gave it that lead in, that push, did the sports center at six o'clock start doing those kinds of numbers. And I don't need to tell you, when you have a six o'clock sports center doing a one rating, that makes your, you know, one and a half MLB game a two. 
and it just all went up and ad sales went with it. It was great. What was it like for you to all of a sudden be somebody who's golfing with the President of the United States? My feeling about it was it was immensely flattering. We get invited by Kyle Learman. Kyle Learman who works in the White House and watches the show and he says, why don't you come to lunch at the, I guess it's like the military mess, the officer's mess in the White House. I guess the Navy maybe provides, it's different than, you know, the Senate dining room and stuff like that. It's in the White House, but it's a dining room in the White House and, and it, I think it's run by the Navy. He says, let's have lunch. Well, I, well, this is great. Sure, that'd be great fun. So we go over to the White House and it's me and Will Bond and Reality. And Reality's connected to Kyle Learman more than we are. I think Tony ordered like the West Wing burger and Mike ordered the, uh, you know, some other themed you know, I'm just worried about getting spinach in my teeth. And we were about to order dessert. And I remember Kornheiser going, you know, because the White House dessert was like the famous thing. You got to get the White House dessert. And then Kyle says, you need to put the dessert on hold for a second. You know, why? He says, well, uh, you know, uh, they want to see you. Who? And he says, well, uh, yeah, the president. Wow. And we walked in a room, an antechamber of some kind. And then you hear the voice say, where are my sport guys? You know? And it's just an absurd thing. And we're a TV show. It yells about sports. And now we're walking in this room. And it's a big high five. And it's a lot on the Bulls. And it's a lot on golf. We go into this room. And we're talking with the president. And big smiles. And photographers. And he says he watches the show. And we had heard he watched the show. So we're very flattered. And we're there for about 45 seconds or whatever it is. And then he says, so when are we going to play golf? And I go, well, how about Saturday? And he goes, okay, let's play Saturday. Let's play Saturday. Well, that's Thursday. Well, let's play Saturday. Well, okay, so now we walk out. And Mike and Tony, as we're walking out, was like, where were we? You know, when we going to tell people where we were, where were we? And I said, you mean the room that was oval-shaped? The room that had George Washington and Abraham Lincoln looking at you? The seal that your feet were on, that you were standing on? And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, we were in the Oval Office. I said, really? What was this? I was sort of concentrating on him. I didn't really know where we were. I had no, neither did Mike. We didn't know we were in the Oval Office, but we knew we were going to play golf. And we played golf. And it's like, how cool is that? And we enjoyed his company, and he apparently enjoyed our company. And we played golf. And when you're on a golf course, yes, I know it's the President of the United States of America, but it's also a guy you're playing golf with, and he's trying to beat you, and you're trying to beat him. And it worked he enjoyed it. He always seemed to enjoy it. He always did. Well, you know, I got to know the president when he was simply Barack Obama running for senator. And Charles and I were doing this book. And in that book, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton sat for sessions or stood or wandered around or whatever we did. We were supposed to have 20 minutes with Barack over lunch one day. We wound up staying with him for like three hours. And we're getting in the car. I remember we getting in a Toyota Highlander. I was driving because it's in Chicago. And Charles is in the passenger seat, and he's getting in. We can both see over the top of the roof. And Charles says, hey, boy, that dude could be president one day soon. And I just looked at him and said, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And that was it. We didn't talk about it anymore. We got in the car. So fast forward, I would see him and Mrs. Obama at restaurants in Chicago because I, I spend a lot of time there. I live there part time. And we got to know each other socially long before he was elected. So that's, we're talking five years before he was elected. And then I, the first phone call I got, you talk about the campaign trail. So March of 2008, March 26th to be exact, the day after my son was born, I get a call and I'm in the car driving from Virginia Beach where Matthew was born. And uh, somebody just says, hold on, 
senator wants to speak to you. And all of a sudden, a voice comes up and it says, stop gripping that wheel so tightly. <laughs> Drive up, get to the speed limit. And it was 44, future 44, making fun of me as a father who was driving his kid for the first time. They were on the bus in either Pennsylvania or Ohio. And there were other nights where he was up watching basketball because that's what he would do, watch basketball late at night, which he knows I'm doing. And so that was all before the White House. That was People think that this is something that happened because we're in Washington and he's in Washington. No. no. No, Tony's part did, but mine was you know a little before that. And we have a lot of the... Mrs. Obama and I have a lot of the same. We grew up on the same plot of land at the same time. I'm a couple of years older. So that was, yeah. I mean, that's surreal on some level, even now. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the support that he's shown. Grateful is a word I'll use advisedly, yeah. How have things changed since PTI went on the air? Because the world of sports journalism has changed considerably. And do you feel like the show has changed the result? Or do you feel like you guys have been able to create your own buffer zone amidst all these changes out there? I don't think we've changed all that much. I think if there's anything we've changed in, and I won't speak for Mike, I'll speak for myself. I'm not in locker rooms anymore. I'm not making calls every day. I'm not having to report on anything. I'm much more of a poobah now than I used to be. And now I'm going on 50 years of being in a business and trying to you know, recall what it was like when I was an actual journalist, which I'm not anymore. Now I'm, you know, I'm just a presence on some level. I'm just a favog like a lot of other people are. But I think that we remain true to the principles of journalism. I don't think we go out there without being grounded in something. And this is, of course, this is Kelleher. I mean, Kelleher keeps us grounded all the time. Kelleher reads everything there is, and Kelleher presents to us all the things that are written, and then we're able to take all that stuff into account and not fly wildly around like a balloon where the air has been released. I believe there has been a market change in, in Tony in the last five years or so. I think we initially said something, again, our office was without so many walls that I don't even know who says it, uh, but it's just like, Mike Wilbon loves being Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser hates being Tony Kornheiser. And that was one of the things that we kind of like built our show on. Tony Kornheiser likes being Tony Kornheiser right now. I was just at the taping of the show and I looked underneath the desk. Wilbon's feet, his feet were so relaxed that he was actually Not mine, reclining baby. on his heels. <laughs> Not mine. My your, right leg is shaking all the right time. Your right leg was going all the time. 150 miles an hour. That's always been that way. That's how I do it. I mean, if my right leg isn't shaking and I'm on the podcast and I'm on the television show, I wonder what's going on. That's, that's, I'm nervous all the time for the work that I do because the work is judged publicly and the work is judged critically and I want it to be good and I want people to like it. Of course, I want people to like it. That's the ultimate judo move then, I guess. You're still nervous internally, but you don't come across obviously on the screen. You wouldn't have lasted this long as somebody who's nervous doing what you're doing. Nervous, not terrified. Nervous. Yeah, I want it to be good. I want to make sure, well, that's, look at the notes that I take. I mean, I take these notes all the time on legal pads. I need to have background. I need to know what I'm thinking about so that when I go off script, I have confidence that I can always go back on script. You know, I mean, that's important to me. So you were known, obviously, as a sports writer, and then you made some television appearances, but were you prepared for the public capital P life that you would have once the show took off. No, but I liked it. 
I mean, I liked it right away. Most of the people that come up to me are very nice and very complimentary of the show, and, and they, as they were about what I did at the Washington Post. Um, this was different, though. This was different, but I sort of, okay, I'll tell you an old story, and you'll see that this is who I am. The greatest moment I ever had in journalism, it, when I was an actual sports writer, the greatest single moment I ever had came pretty early for me. I was working at the New York Times, and I was taking a late train home on a Saturday night to Long Island from New York, and the first edition of the great Sunday Times had come out, and the guy in front of me on the train was reading something I had written, and I was just blown away. This was, what a compliment this was, and I could see when he was done with the stuff that started on the dress page of the sports section, and what I wanted to say was, jump inside. It continues on, on page 10, jump inside, it's really good. I worked really hard on this. So that kind of recognition I strived for, I wanted that. I, I know there are a lot of people that don't. I like it, I've always liked it. I guess I've always craved fame to some degree, and I guess it took me a long time to realize that I was a performer, you know? I mean, that's what I do, I'm a performer, and I think performers like applause. So when you say the big sort of public life that you have, it's never been a problem. I've always liked it. When you look back on it, what is most important and what's most special to you about this show? And why do you think it's still such an important part of ESPN's landscape now in 2017? I think the most important thing is Tony and Mike. Um, and I'm not just being falsely humble there. A lot of shows are given a couple of talent, and there's an attempt for those folks to create chemistry. They go on, you know, trips, or they go, you know, go out to dinners, and they try to get to know each other, and then try to have chemistry on air. And you, sometimes you see a lot of fake laughter and things like that that result from that. And it's a difficult thing to do. We were sort of handed the reverse hand. You know, we had two guys who had the great relationship and we just sort of had to put it out there. It's like it's a catharsis, even from a difficult day. The act of doing the show, they have fun doing it. We have fun still watching them do it. And I think that's the number one key to why we've been successful is they still enjoy sitting across from each other and going through all that stuff, having a voice, having fun. Um, having disagreements, but being able to end all those disagreements with a smile and the idea given to the viewer that these guys are really just having a conversation they might have off air, and the viewer has been given the opportunity to listen in on it. So 16 years later, not to get too lofty, but you've been in sports journalism now you know, for many years. How would you characterize PTI's legacy, both in terms of inside ESPN and its legacy for ESPN, but then also just in the larger canvas of sports journalism and covering sports. Well, I do think to a large extent, it changed how people think on sports television. I know it's changed television generally. I mean, there were other opinion shows on television before PTI, but I think PTI took that and brought it to the next level and the whole rundown down the side of the screen which was considered radical initially, is just accepted now. You know, the other thing that I think maybe PTI sold people on is that money in television is overrated. We had no budget to speak of. And initially, we had no reason to believe that we could get big-name guests or anything like that. So we were forced to be creative in the absence of money and reputation. 
And I think being creative meant more than having money because it forced us to do things in a different kind of way. For instance, when we didn't think we could get the most important personalities or players in, in any given day in the world of sports, we said, okay, what are we going to do? Well, we came up with role playing. We came up with faces on sticks. And in fact, I think it's more effective that way. So we would not have come up with that if we weren't forced to be creative. So yes, you need some money, but you don't, too much money can be a detriment if used the wrong way. I'd rather have people be creative. Um, there's a very small staff, PTI. They're not afraid to take risks. They knew I was behind them. Shapiro's behind them. You know, now it's been so many years that no one's going to say, don't do it to PTI because they're the leaders. I look at viewers as investing their time into a television show. Just like you might invest your money into the stock market, what is your expectation as an investor? What is your hope as an investor? Your hope is to get a return on your investment in terms of getting more money. Well, when you spend or invest a half hour of your time as a viewer into a television show, what is your expectation in terms of the return on your investment? And to me, it was always pretty simple. It was to be entertained and to be enlightened. If you come away from that half hour in a better mood and smarter, then we've succeeded and that investment has paid off and there's a greater chance that you as a viewer are going to return the next day. So as long as the chemistry was strong between Tony and Mike, as long as their characters remained strong, and as long as they were enlightening and entertaining, then I felt viewers, we had a pretty good chance of viewers just sticking with us. And so the fact that we've been able to hold on to our viewers, the fact that we've been able to continue to have success, that we've been operating still at a high level, I think just testament to who Tony and Mike are, what their relationship is like, the fact that they still are intellectually curious, so they're getting smarter, which means that our viewers can get smarter. Could you imagine doing it 10 years from now? I'll be dead. I mean, well, if I were alive yeah. and I were physically able to do it, well, why wouldn't I do it? I mean, I like it, but they might say, no, he's such a geezer. He's so stuck in the sand. He's just too old. The counter to that is that I work with all of these people in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. And when you're around them all the time, they keep you young if you listen to them, if you listen to them. This stage in your life, though, in a way, it's exactly the opposite of what your mindset or your crystal ball may have been 20 years ago. Because if somebody had said to you 20 years from now, you're actually not going to be writing as you're going to be like a TV star and you're going to be. Couldn't imagine it. Tony and I are so lucky in that I loved going to the Washington Post newsroom and getting off on the fifth floor of that building at 1150 15th Street every day. I loved it. And I love coming in here. So we have a similar environment with people okay. that you want to be around every day. We landed on the best planet in the solar system. And that's a reasonable way to describe it. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.